0: Seven investors and welcome to the Wednesday edition of Seven Investing Now. My name is Daniel Brooks Klein. My friends call me Dan. Please don't call me Danny. I'm joined today by Simon Erickson. (laughs) Simon, well, you can call me Danny if you grew up with me or like you knew me before I was like five. That's the last time I successfully
1: used that. Simon, there are no
0: nicknames for Simon.
1: Dan, it is gl- I'm glad to be here with you, and Simon is just fine. I love that. That's perfect. <laughs> so
0: you say you're glad to be here, because I almost wasn't here. Everyone can tell I'm a little fuzzy, I'm a little red, I'm a little disheveled we're moving today and moving never goes well but we had planned this in advance so my wife left this morning at about 8 a.m 9 a.m to drive our cats over they're going to be in my new office the door is closed there's a big sign on the door do not open cats uh and she was parked middle of the garage blocking all the access to the house and of course her car wouldn't start uh so she called AAA. As is always the case, they don't show up when they're supposed to. So now we have movers with a truck full of stuff and a car blocking their access. I have no idea what's going to happen. We sent someone over. There's a tow truck coming. It is all a disaster. But, Simon, I am happy to be here, and I am happy to talk about our top story because it is a big one. The European Union is taking on big tech. Uh, They're looking at passing some pretty significant rules. The big one uh, is not being able to self-preference. That means... Apple is not going to be able to say, "Hey, you know, you really have to use our browser and make it really difficult for you to get others." Simon, ten thousand foot view. What do you think of this?
1: Yeah, here we go, Dan. You know, regulators butting heads with big tech companies again, right? <laughs> I feel like we've talked about this a couple of times in the last few years. The, the, but they're,
0: is... they're European regulators, though, so the baguettes are better. The coffee's really good. <laughs> like, like, like. There's that. But sorry, stepped on you there.
1: Yes, it is. And of course, in Europe, you know they take this very seriously. the The idea behind this is, like you said, self-preferencing. Um the big tech companies, this is a net negative for them. When Google sells you an Android device, it wants to have Google Maps. Where you're looking for a restaurant that you want to eat at that evening and then use an app that it's pre-installed to make the booking for it. And a zillion different ideas that are just like that. But it wants to compile all this data together, wants to tether as much user data as possible so they can continue to make uh, additional services revenue over time. Apple's doing the same thing with the iPhones. And if you decouple... That user data from the apps and that are pre-installed in those devices, it uh, it's it's a challenge for for the companies that are trying to get their services revenue as high as possible.
0: Yeah, I think it's actually less of a problem for Google because Apple has really made it difficult to not use their defaults. Well, you know, we use Google Drive and sometimes it's actually tricky to get to Google Drive, let alone to, uh, to have it be the default. But they're talking about some pretty significant consequences. Uh, obviously this is gonna be a, a roadmap from what might happen in the US, but Simon, what's gonna happen if they don't comply?
1: Well, I mean, they're saying a 10% penalty off of revenue for all of their European operations. So this is obviously something that these companies are going to be taking very, very seriously. Huge penalties. This is not a slap on the wrist of a couple billion dollars here or there that we've seen in the past. Uh, this is going to be something that's that's going to be overarching in all of Europe, and all of the big companies are going to have to comply.
0: So I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit here. I actually have middling feelings about this. I am not. If I buy an Apple device. I fully understand Apple Music is going to be featured and not Spotify. And here's what they're trying to do: the goal is to foster competition. But are there really going to be new competitors for I don't know Microsoft Office or Apple Music? It it doesn't seem like this accomplishes much other than I don't know making my phone a tiny bit more democratic. And and I don't need a democratic phone. I want Apple stuff. That's why I have an iPhone. Simon, do you agree? Do you disagree?
1: I mean, I think it's a net negative for these companies. The idea is to make uh, everything more competitive for the little guy to get their app noticed and installed by people that are using them on their on their smart devices. Uh, most of the time, people are still going to stick with the apps they know anyway, uh, which is going to be good. I think at the end of the day the European Union is uh, and the regulators that are over there are trying to keep you know monopolies from popping up and these are tech companies are generally as close to monopolies as you can get because of all the data and the advantages that they have from that. And so I don't think it's going to make it to answer your question. I don't think it's going to make a really, really big difference for them. They're still going to be totally fine. It's just this is a net negative for the services uh, revenue line item.
0: We're going to talk about uh, a second piece of legislation in a second, but first, remember, this is an interactive show, so if you'd like to talk to us, wherever you're watching this, in theory, if you put in the comments, uh, we will be able to see them. I say in theory because it doesn't always work on every platform, but there's actually a second piece of legislation here, Simon, that is a... uh, that is called the Digital Service Act. This is designed to make the platforms responsible for taking down illegal content. That's actually kind of the opposite of how it works in the US. I think this is a good idea as long as it's enforced on sort of a due diligence basis. If it's, uh, you know, if Facebook is making every effort and something sneaks through or it's extra clever, I don't want to see them punished. Same with Google, same with Apple. Uh, but I do think you should be responsible for the, uh, You know, the content of your platform, if all of a sudden someone pops up behind me and they start swearing and taking their clothes off, we should probably turn my camera off. Like, that's a pretty good idea. Uh, Simon, your thoughts on this piece of it?
1: This is a challenging one. Uh, This is a big problem for all of these platforms that have user-generated content, you know, whether that's YouTube, whether that's Facebook, whether that's whatever, where you can upload your videos. We talk about 7investing and investing, and that's great. That's content that people want to watch, but a lot of people are putting harmful content out there as well. Now, the challenge is who's going to determine what is harmful? There's a pretty clear line on what is illegal, and that's the same as it's been in the United States. But as you mentioned here, Dan, uh, Europe's Digital Services Act is different than what the Department of Justice did in the United States just in October, which is basically saying you can self-police your own platform. Based on your own terms and conditions, Facebook, you can determine what is inappropriate content that has been uploaded. You self-police and make sure that that's being taken down. In Europe, it's more of a story of they want to have a centralized watchdog watchdog that's subjectively making that decision, monitoring and regulating those platforms based on the decisions that it's made. Um, I, I think that I understand where they're going with this, but I also think that's going to be incredibly time intensive. It's going to cost a lot of money, and they're going to have to spend a lot of people's time uh, making those decisions. I think this is going to be very challenging.
0: It's really, really tricky because, you know, what's what's truth? What's subjective? So let's say, and I'm not going to get political here. And I promise you I'm going to steer it away from it while starting in the political realm. There's been a lot of talk about, you know, the election. And if I say, geesh I question the dog catcher election. There's 11 people who live in my town and, and there are 13 votes. I have a question there. Like I'm allowed to have that question. That's not illegal. That said, there's a lot of seditious, incorrect, knowingly incorrect information, uh, and that could do harm. So let's say I said uh, the state of Montana is not real. I don't believe anyone from the state of Montana is a United States citizen. Is that ridiculous? Is it hurtful? Is it hurtful? Is it illegal? Simon, there's just a ton of gray area here, and I hope my examples were ridiculous enough for me to not get fired. (laughs)
1: <laughs> You're still on board, Dan. Don't worry about that. I, I think that you know the, the, the biggest platforms, they, they know that they're going to have to comply with regulations on a regional basis, whether that's in the United States, whether that's in Europe, whatever the law says that they need to do, whatever the regulators say that they need to do, they're going to unleash AI to filter through the content and find things that are inappropriate. And, and Facebook's going to be able to do that. But again, this is, a, this is a moving bar and it's different in different parts of the world. And uh, the EU is taking a pretty firm stance on it.
0: This is the same AI that produced a Simpsons joke uh, where, where uh, in one room, someone in the family accidentally ended up on sort of a, uh, you know, an X-rated site. Uh, they And they had the parental screening and Marge tried to look up her uh, mammogram appointment and everything got blocked. So I'm not <laughs> sure I trust AI just yet, but we are getting there. So this is something to watch because... Obviously, all of these companies, let's call it big tech, they're under the gun in, US, in the U.S. They're very powerful. They control a lot of things. Certainly, Facebook, Google, Apple, uh, whether they'll have to divest, whether they'll have to police more, this is no longer a U.S. question. It is a global question, and it matters for investors. This is going to affect Amazon, too, though it is harder to argue that Amazon is a monopoly. It's hard to argue that any of these are monopolies, but they control an awful lot. Simon, before we get to what we're watching, uh, we are doing something that's Probably the most exhausting, but also the most fun thing we do on Friday. We're having our team calls. Would you like to tell the Seven Investing audience what we do on Fridays? Or well, it's not every Friday. It's one Friday a month.
1: I love these, Dan. This is where we get to be investors and really just kind of hammer it out as a team. Each of our recommendations every single month. Uh, We haven't run them. We haven't had them run uh, into the morning yet. Thank goodness. We we do go for several hours, but we haven't passed midnight in a, in terms of how long these run but it's it's basically every every month each advisor finds our very best recommendation in the stock market and we have to defend that to the rest of the team too because we don't want to just go out there guns blazing saying every pick is a is a buy to infinity we want to challenge each other and look at the risks that are inherent for each one of these recommendations and so our team calls is a behind the scenes look at those discussions where each advisor is presenting their best idea and then the rest of the team is quite fairly and objectively asking questions about it. And we compile all of that into our recommendation reports that we publish on the first of every single month.
0: So here's the cool thing about this: if you're a member and you can join us at seveninvesting.com/slash subscribe, we actually publish these videos. So if you say, "Okay, you know, Dan recommended this stock, and and I read his write up, and I have some more questions," well, you can get not only 15 minutes of me presenting with graphics and I don't know pyrotechnics, and I, I think I've got a marching band for this one. <laughs> uh, you can not only watch that, but you can also ask people who know the space well, ask me questions, and. Maybe like Max or Manisha who are in biotech, maybe they don't understand whatever entertainment or retail stock or cannabis, whatever it is I've picked that month. Um, They're going to ask questions. So if you're an experienced investor in that space, you'll get what you need. If you're not an experienced investor in that space, you will also get what you need. Really valuable. We, of course, would love for you to join. Simon, we're going to do what we're watching. We're going to talk about the state of virtual reality. Let me tell you my personal state of virtual reality. I bought an Oculus go maybe last Christmas and I used it for maybe 20 minutes. I used it again with some friends so they could do like the virtual roller coaster for 20 minutes. Then I lost the remote, bought another remote, couldn't figure out how to get it connected and have not used it since. So that's where I am on virtual reality, but this has been the next big thing for a very long time is it's day here or is it still something we're waiting for?
1: it's still something we're waiting for. It's something that uh, virtual reality is in the headlines every year. Um, I've seen it at CES. I've seen it at South by Southwest. There's always incredible booths. I listened to a symphony in virtual reality. That was pretty cool. Did a roller coaster in virtual reality. There's all these kind of fun um, ideas of what VR can be. And just, it seems like it's always kind of the next couple of years it's going to catch on. Dan, but I, I do think that there's something to this. Um, we've seen kind of the form factor of computing change a lot <clears throat> in several decades here. You know, mainframes get replaced by personal computers, personal computers get replaced by <clears throat> mobile devices. And now there's kind of are we in the next form factor shift? to something that's not tethering us to looking down all the time while we're driving or when we're talking to people, but you can actually be a little bit more engaged in conversations, in business meetings, in whatever it is, um, in an augmented reality way, or something that's completely immersive, maybe for the gaming industry, in virtual reality. So I I think that the demand is starting to get there. Um, There are a lot of other factors to consider, and the price of the headsets probably being paramount there. But it, it's something that, you know, there's predictions that this is going to be a huge industry. We keep seeing them. It just hasn't quite caught on yet, Dan. But as a long-term investor, I'm very, very interested in it.
0: I, I am as well. But it, and it does feel real. Like some examples of next big thing that never happened, 3D TV. There was no reason for 3D TV. No one was watching like Friends and thought, you know, it would be awesome if the Friends just popped off my television. It's, it's a gimmick. It wasn't necessary. Augmented reality is imagine you're driving. And instead of having to look down to see what speed you're going, it's it's in your display. Like, imagine if uh, your GPS arrows were actually on your screen and you didn't have to look another place. There's a lot of examples, uh, you know, glasses that give you information. Maybe it tells you the temperature. Maybe it tells you your heart rate while you're working out, whatever it is. Augmented reality is here and it's becoming more of a thing. Pokemon Go was, was augmented reality and it was very popular. Let's talk about investing in virtual reality. M- my biggest play here, Simon... I'm actually kind of bullish on Microsoft. The Hololens has really strong business implications, and I have to admit, uh, I have put one on. I did get to test one at uh, maybe a CES. I'm not even sure at, at some trade show.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's first to look at the larger forecast. It's something that you know ID, IDC I think does a pretty good job with this. They're predicting that VR and AR together around a twelve billion dollar industry this year. They're expecting that to basically sextuple to seventy three billion dollars by 2024. And so by my count, Dan, that's um, only four years away. So we're going to have some pretty outsized growth if this forecast is anywhere near accurate. And VR today is is mostly for gaming applications. Um, We've got games you can play uh, through virtual reality. We've got Facebook now has got Facebook Horizon, which is kind of a virtual reality world that they just launched. I mean, the technology is there. You can just stream something on your computer, even on your uh, your smartphone, if you have the headset equipped to do the 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 VR, the AR, and the real question to, to your point about Microsoft, I think is is where does this enter the enterprise? Do we want to start doing Zoom meetings and Zoom conferences where it's much more realistic if we're actually all in a virtual room together? Do we want to start uh, doing training and simulations for very technical things like uh, mechanics or or doctor surgeries, you know, and things like this where you want to be hands on and be there during the simulation? I mean, things like this, the technology is ready to go. It's just we need to start seeing the applications catch on. A lot of companies who, of course, have got relationships with Microsoft could be a, a great place to do that.
0: So, we're going to talk numbers in a second. But for me, the drawback is the headset. So, yeah, what I like to have our Thursday happy hour where we can all see each other and we're wearing a headset. Great except I have the original Oculus Go headset and it's really heavy and like more than 20 minutes. It's uncomfortable. It's a really cool experience if you're, say, like watching Netflix uh, and your head is supported. So if you wanted to bring it on a plane, it's a really nice way to immersively watch a movie. But right now it's not there. It needs to be glasses. It needs to be something very light. And I don't think that's that far off. We're a year or two out. But it's important to note in that IDC forecast, about seventeen point six billion is going to be AR and VR gaming. Think the uh, the latest Spider-Man game on the the PlayStation Four, PlayStation Five, uh, which works with their headset but you're also gonna get about 4.1 billion in training. This can be everything from a training on say like a construction crane, where if you get it wrong in real life, it's a real problem uh, to doctors learning new surgeries. That's already happening on the HoloLens. Industrial maintenance is gonna be about the same amount, about 4.1 billion in retail showcasing. So imagine you put on a headset and it shows you like all the things that could happen in your house if you went with the the new kitchen package they were looking for. Uh, So again, this is going to be gigantic. But Simon, am I right that like really the headset has to catch up because we're not going to wear these like bulky like Boba Fett helmets in order to uh to use this stuff?
1: Yeah, they have. I think that they're ready. You know, Facebook now has a Quest headset that's three hundred dollars, and that's a price point that's available. It's going to get even cheaper in the next couple of years. They've got another one I think that's one hundred twenty dollars right now. So these are things that are affordable for a lot of people to start using. Um, I think that there's no doubt that Facebook and Microsoft are going to be winners from this. But on the other hand, Dan, these are such large companies, and VR is going to be such a small revenue generator for them. I don't think it's going to move the needle for them. I think that for me, the more interesting play is going to be the ecosystem that builds out from this. You know how many how many fortunes have been made from apps that got distributed across the the app store? On Android devices or the iPhone, and you know I think we're going to similarly see once people get the headsets in their hands, they're going to want to start building out the the games, the applications that are going to be a natural fit for for virtual reality. And and so the company that's on my radar that I think is really interesting from this is actually Electronic Arts. Uh, this is the company who's got the franchises like FIFA for soccer. Uh, Madden for NFL games they've got the Sims which is kind of a virtual world already I mean I think things like that where a large portion of the money they're making is these in-game purchases you know you kind of do these transactions you're buying things to equip your character uh, you're you're buying things in the sims simulation world things like that could get really interesting for virtual reality so okay maybe they subsidize the game or give it to you for free. But if you get the headset on, you start doing these transactions within the game. These are becoming really big money makers for those content providers, uh, especially the game makers.
0: You think for EA here, Simon, there's a fitness play as well, where like, you know, you're playing Madden and you're actually like moving, you know, like, like uh, you know, your virtual boxing and things like that. Those things, you know, we had the old Xbox device that did that. And do you think there are form factors we just haven't seen that some little company out of nowhere is going to create?
1: Sure, yeah. A friend of mine, actually a colleague of mine from MBA school, uh, started a company called Virtuix. It's got an omnidirectional platform, so it's zero friction. You can move around as your character in the game, and it's actually a full workout. And parents love it because their kids aren't just you know with controllers in front of the TV. They're actually running a couple of miles every day and getting a a workout at the same time. I mean, things like that are going to be huge. The Dave and Busters of the world, Dan, I mean, they're going to spend top dollar to get the best games and the best systems that maybe you play them once for a couple of dollars. Um, But a lot of people want that experience. And those are very profitable commercial venues. Um, So and so I think that, you know, the question is kind of twofold. One is, where does this catch? When does this catch on in the enterprise? And then the second question is, when does this catch on in your living room for the consumer market?
0: And I'll point out that they'll be profitable for the companies making the VR technology. It is hard to call Dave and Buster's a profitable enterprise. It is <laughs> it is very it is very much not. But I do think there is an interesting play here. And I've done some of this, uh, you know, sat in the like virtual you know, simulator in a in a mall, and they tend to be very gimmicky. They haven't worked that well as that catches up and it becomes a really great experience. That usually is, okay, I did this at Dave & Buster's, now I want the home version. So these things should all grow with each other. Seven Investors, we appreciate you watching. Uh, I am pretty sure the comments are not working. I entered a comment uh, on our Twitter feed and it did not pop up. So I think we're having some technical difficulties with the comments, but we are going to soldier on. I will say, I... I know I'm gonna buy the new $300 Oculus, even though I didn't use the previous one, just because the, the idea of it, and there's a Star Wars game, the idea of it is just kind of so awesome that I'm sort of willing to put up with the fact that it's not that useful and I'll probably end up buying five iterations. This is my sixth Apple Watch uh, and it's the one I'm finally happy with. So I'm willing to waste money and grow with technology. Simon, I'll give you the, the last word. When do you think a VR headset makes its way into your house?
1: Oh, gosh, that's a good question, Dan. I I, um, I guess I'll put the over under at 2023. So <laughs> let's put the over under three years from, from Christmas this year.
0: Oh, wow. You're going to be borrowing my like six used ones well before then. <laughs> <laughs> Joey Klein, thank you. YouTube comments work. Uh, so if you're watching on YouTube, feel free to get a comment. And we are still ironing out the technology. Uh, and we appreciate you coming along. Simon, we're going to hit the home stretch. This was probably the most successful tweet I've ever seen. So Sam Bailey, if you would like to share Simon's tweet, uh, I will read it to the audience. Say that I give you $1 million to invest in just one stock for the next five years. In five years, I'll be asking for my full $1 million back, but you get to keep the rest. In other words, you take on the downside risk, but you also keep all the upside. This is an amazing question. As you can see from the numbers here, the audience thought it was an amazing question as well. Simon, I was surprised because my answer here would have been like Costco or Microsoft or something that like I knew would be bigger in five years and I'd make money, but I really wouldn't be risking my downside. I wouldn't be risking having to write you a check. A lot of people put some really, really risky stocks like, do I think Tesla is a growth stock? Absolutely. Do I think Tesla in five years is necessarily bigger than it is now? I am not betting a million dollars on that. Your thoughts.
1: Yeah, thank, thank you for the kind words, Dan. And there definitely is nuance to the question, very purposeful in the way that it was written, uh, because this is a loan. This is not a gift. A million dollars was meant to represent a loan that you can go out and invest in a company for five years, but you still have to pay the million dollars back. And a million dollars is a lot of money. So if your stock goes up in flames and you lose it all, you've still got a hefty check to write back. And so I think that was kind of my framing uh, for Position this is a long-term investment. You know, you've got five years. We know that that's an adequate time to get a pretty good return for most stocks in the stock market if you actually look at the long-term returns. But it was one that I and there's no wrong, wrong or right answers to this. But you know, I always kind of thought about it if you don't want to bet the farm on this one. You know, this is not the time you want to swing for the fences because if you're down 50 percent when it comes due in five years, uh, you've still got to you still got to pay that back. And so long-term investing, again, is, is exactly the, the same way. I mean, this, the takeaway from this is you don't want to have to use money that you know you're going to be uh, needing for for your mortgage payment, for kids' tuition, whatever it is in the short term that you have. You want to let that compound over time so you're not worried about, oh, I've got to make this payment. I've got to pull this out of the stock market right now. We don't know what's going to happen in the in the next week. We don't know what's going to happen in the next six months. Um it's very, very challenging for anyone to predict that kind of thing. But if you let this work on your terms for the, for the, for the longer term, um, you can compound those returns. And that's, that's how long-term investing works to your advantage.
0: And we do, of course, at 7investing sometimes make risky picks, uh, but we often tell you, you have to figure out your own risk tolerance. So I'm, I'm the oldest member of the team. I'm 47 years old. So in theory, my retirement horizon is sooner or my, hey, I can't work anymore horizon is sooner than most of the rest of the team, than all of the rest of the team. So I might only have 5% of my portfolio in uh, risky biotech stocks, in, in dangerous cannabis place, in things where there's a possibility of going to zero. Uh, whereas someone who's younger, say Max Chasko, he might feel totally comfortable with having 50%, 75% in risky stocks because if they do go to zero or they are very volatile, he's got an extra 20 years to play with when it comes to to retirement. But this brings up a couple of things besides just uh, portfolio and allocation and your risk tolerance. Simon, never borrow money to buy stocks. It, it, it sounds like a great idea. I can take a home equity loan at three percent, four percent, five percent, and I can make nine percent on average in the market. That is free money, but it doesn't work that way. Please feel free to elaborate.
1: Yeah, I, I just think that the the punchline for me is that investing is personal. The the reason that we we set up Seven Investing the way that we did is we wanted to give our best ideas of what we see going on out there in the market, but still hand the torch to all of our subscribers to make the decision of what's best for them. We're not managing people's money. We don't want to be making decisions. We don't want to be financial advisors. Uh, we just want to be stock pickers that we, we leverage our work and, and time that we put into the research so that people can have a buffet of options to choose from. And like you said, Dan, we're not always picking risky stocks. Uh, we do have some biotech companies that I would consider pretty high on the risk profile. Uh, we've got other ones that are in cloud computing or artificial intelligence that are really cutting edge. But we've also recommended retail companies, right? We've also recommended a lot of uh, utilities, you know, dividend paying companies that are much lower uh, on the risk profile, but we still think are going to outperform the market. And so if you're closer to retirement, you want some dividend checks to pay uh, for your expenses every year. Maybe those are the right kind of options for you versus if you want to sit for for 10 years on kind of... the biggest trends taking place in genomics or biotechnology, maybe that's kind of a higher risk uh, company you might want to invest in there. So it's, it's different for all of us. I, I enjoy seeing the recommendations every month for our, our upcoming recommendations. There's actually some companies I've even never heard of that <laughs> our team is recommending, which I, I'm very excited to hear about. Uh, but we're all different. Every, every one of our picks kind of represents uh, the style of each of our advisors. And it's, and it's up to each of our subscribers to figure out which is best for them.
0: Simon, I'm going to come back to you in a second because I would like to know which, if I gave you a million dollars and that same five-year scenario, which stock would you buy? But I want to tell an example of where risk may not make sense. So, as you know, I'm an avid uh, cruiser and I'm on a bunch of different Facebook groups for people who take cruises. And if you happen to own 100 shares of Royal Caribbean stock, you get $100 onboard credit on cruises of a certain length, $50. And a lot of people were saying, oh, I should buy that. And one, it's a pretty significant investment based on uh, where they're trading, but also, and I jumped in and I I shared this on the board, please remember that there is some risk of bankruptcy here. And do you want to invest a couple thousand dollars to get a hundred dollar perk when you could lose your capital? And not many people had considered that. So you have to look at when you invest all pieces of it, not just what the upside is, but what's the downside. And look, do I expect cruise line bankruptcies? I don't. But if there's a a slowdown in vaccines, if uh, if something doesn't go well and you can't they can't resume in the spring, it's possible. And would you really want to be out a few thousand dollars so you could save a hundred dollars sometimes? But with that little lesson being told, Simon, what stock would you buy with the million dollars I'm going to loan you?
1: Yeah, great point, Dan. Uh, And. I echo what you said. The stock market is not a casino. It's a methodical way to compound wealth over time. But my company, if I'm picking one company to hold on to for five years, is Amazon. Uh, For a variety of reasons, we talk about this on a lot of our other podcasts, but I just like the combination of great capital allocation with a visionary leader. Jeff Bezos is a visionary leader that has got his eyes on everything going on out there. Uh, And then he executes. He spends Amazon's money well on the projects that have the highest internal rates of return, and then everybody else is trying to catch up with them in so many different fields. I picked Amazon for my company.
0: Not not a bad one. And a ton of optionality with Amazon. They have AWS. Look, they're launching a chain of grocery stores. They opened another Amazon Go convenience store today and are getting pretty close to being able to roll that out nationally. And you know what it's a good time to do? It's a really good time to be getting retail locations. You're making some very favorable leases if you're Amazon.
1: Yeah we and appreciate- Dan how how about how about you know is internal investing that that Jeff does too right I mean Amazon's projects are just like we talk about investing in in terms of our money uh, he, you know the fire phone do you remember the fire phone Dan Remember, that's still what I use. (laughs) The Fire Phone was a a colossal failure for Amazon. You know, nobody used it. It was supposed to sell like crazy and then no one bought it. But what was the cost to Amazon? They didn't go all in on it. They tried something out. They experimented with something. That might be a small percentage allocation of your portfolio that if it doesn't work out the way you expected okay you didn't bet the farm on something like that but cloud computing amazon web services he put a lot of money and a, a big bet on something like that because they were executing he saw that building competitive advantages you know everything that that built alongside aws Um, was was successful. So it's okay if everything doesn't work out perfectly. Even Amazon and, and Elon Musk at Tesla goes through those same kind of things. But you want to see compounding over time. It works internally for companies, just like it works externally for us as investors in those companies.
0: I want to see Amazon have projects fail. That means they're trying a lot of things. They have something like 12 or 13 different retail concepts. There's the four-star store. There's the bookstore. There's Go. There's their grocery stores. There's Whole Foods. There's all sorts of other things. Now, are all of those going to get rolled out nationally? No, they're not. But by trying them, they're going to figure out the ones that work and the ones that don't. Uh, And I'm going to guess more will work than don't. We appreciate you being with us. You're watching 7 Investing Now. We do this every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, uh, and we're doing it today, as per usual, with some challenges. Uh, I am not where I intended to be to broadcast this, uh, but we are getting through, and we appreciate all of you watching. Simon, it is time to hit our finisher. Uh, Sam Bailey. Sam is our marketing director, and she's also directing the show today. Which cable alternative will be the big winner? 11.6% said Sling TV. 26.5% said Hulu Live. 5.2% said AT&T TV. 56.7% Fifty-six point seven percent said YouTube TV. I hate to tell you, seven investors, you are wrong. Uh, <laughs> if, any of them, if any of them have a chance, it's Hulu Live. Hulu Live is owned by Disney. Uh, if you have Disney Plus, you get a deal on Hulu. You decide to cut the cord. You're not going to go to a totally new ecosystem. I see zero chance that YouTube TV is the winner here. But Simon, your thoughts?
1: Oh, I defer to you on this one, Dan. You're the media expert. I probably would have voted for you t- for. Uh... I'm sorry, for Hulu Live, but I don't have the conviction that you do. So maybe that reinforces that I made the right call to hear you say that that's the one that you would have picked as well.
0: I I think Sling TV has the possibility of being a player here as well. They were first to market. It's a really good product. They They have a low entry price point and a lot of different options. And the options all make sense. They're really easy to do. But Simon, you asked me here about one that's not on the list, and that's Fubo. Uh, and Fubo has done a really good marketing job. So they built their marketing around the idea that they're a sports service. And I'm not saying it's a scam, but it is kind of a scam. It's not that they don't offer you live sports. And I'm sure you've seen the commercials. Hulu has live sports with, uh, with Baker Mayfield. Uh, and yeah. All of these have live sports. What FUBU has done is in their skinny bundle, they've prioritized channels that have sports. So instead of getting like, I don't know, the food network and DIY and cooking and travel network, maybe you'll get more ESPN channels. Maybe you'll get the SEC network. Maybe you'll get access to a regional sports network. There is more sports in Fubo. But most of those are things you can get on Sling, on YouTube TV, the networks, it depends very much where you live, what your access is. So... When you're pricing any of these or when you're looking at it, one, you need to look at what you need. The basic $25 Sling TV package for a lot of people is going to give them what they need along with Netflix. And then you go, okay, but, but I want ESPN. Okay, well, you step it up to the $35 package. Okay, I need uh, the SEC network. Well, maybe FUBU is right for you. I need whatever it is. My, my wife likes to watch MTV. Well, you find, you know, she doesn't. But let's find whatever package has that all of these are different and the marketing makes it sound like there's some exclusive special sports on fubo and there really isn't it's just that in a skinny bundle which means you're going to make sacrifices they've made sacrifices where there's more sports and less of other stuff it If you're an NFL fan, is having six golf channels really going to matter to you? Like, you really need to look exactly what's in the package. And the cool thing about any of these is you can generally move from them. So, like, if you're a Sling TV subscriber and something you really want to watch isn't available in their package, maybe you cancel and you sign up for Hulu Live for a month. It's really easy to move. Uh, Simon, are you a cable customer? Do you have one of these?
1: I don't have any of those. I'm a cable customer. I haven't cut the cord yet, but that's not a decision that's up to me, Dan.
0: Yeah, I'm a cable customer, uh, which is included uh, in my in my new house, or else I probably would have cut the cord. But I am also a Sling TV customer at our vacation home. And when I'm on the road, uh, and it's a really easy to use good product. Uh, last night at our house, our TVs had moved. So I sat on my phone and I, I watched television on Sling TV. If you have cable and you're paying, I was paying $210 a month, uh, unbeknownst yeah. to me. If you're paying that much, these are good services. Uh, and any of them work, and you have to factor in things like: uh, do I mind watching commercials? Do I do I want to DVR something and still have to watch the commercial? That can be a problem. Uh, so you really want to look into exactly what you're getting. And of course, if you don't live alone, make sure you get the favorite channels for anyone else's house. But <laughs> you know, I, I, I like here's the thing: it's really important for me that I have NFL games, not my wife so much. Uh, so if she sits down and she wants to watch Chopped on you know the Food Network, and we don't have the Food Network. I would be in a tiny bit of trouble. but uh, and,
1: and Dan, so- is it still safe to say that, that sports content is the most expensive content for any of these providers? I mean, from everything, you, it seems like the Fubo example is just that sports content is still the most demanded, but it's also getting the highest rates and it's the most expensive for anybody to get access to.
0: Yeah, the entry-level Fubo package, and there might be some cheaper ones, but the 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 one they feature on their page is $65. There's a $25 mm. sling package. Uh, I don't know what Hulu Live is now, but last time I was a subscriber, it was $39.99, uh, and I think it might be a little more now, but for a pretty good package of channels. But you really need to look, what do I get and what do I watch? Uh, if you have cable, it's, the, it's about the 15th of the month, or the 16th of the month today. I would take the next two weeks of the month, and it's a weird time with Christmas, so maybe you have to wait till the new year. I would actually keep a television diary. What did I watch? And would I care if I didn't have that? Like if you're watching a... 90 Day Fiance in the background and you didn't have whatever channel that's on and you could watch Married at First Sight, which I think is on a different channel, but I might be wrong, and it's all background noise to you and it doesn't matter. Well, that's different than, wow, my wife and I every week watch uh, The Simpsons or we watch uh, Law & Order SBU and that's appointment, you know, we watch Saturday Night Live the next day because I can't stay up till 1 o'clock on a Saturday. Um, It's really important. There's a lot of choices and it isn't easy. The, The nice thing about cable is you generally get everything you need for that one price. But of course, what they do is they take two or three things you really, really want, and they put them in the next tier. That is how they get you. Uh, But Simon, we got them. Uh, We apologize that the comments weren't working or maybe you didn't have a lot of comments. We don't know. Uh, But that is this week's, that is this week's today's. That is today's edition of 7investing Now. We're going to be back on Friday. And of course, on Friday, we are also doing our member call. So if you're a member of 7investing, we do one call every month for new members. You can ask us all the questions about how the services work. We take you through all the different pieces of it. And then for existing members, all seven of us, you can ask us anything. We can't give you personal investing advice, but we could certainly share how we would do it. Those are really fun. We hope you join us. For Simon Erickson, I'm Dan Klein. Thank you for watching. See you Friday.